What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And joining us again today is a special guest whom we've featured before in our Wheel of Time review. Mr. Craig Hanks from the Legendarian Podcast is with us. Craig, that's good, man. What's up, everybody? I, I feel like I, I want a fake applause track going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, Pat, make sure to put that in in post. Give him some more work. Craig, you were last with us, I believe, when we were covering, I should say I believe, I looked it up. It, uh, it was the Dragon Reborn. <laughs> Dragon Reborn, It was yeah, part one and two, right? I think yeah. you were here for both parts. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and those were actually some of our longest episodes. I think we've had two episodes since that have been slightly longer, but we had a well, lot to I, talk about. I, I don't think today I'm going to run that risk of making you go over. Cause, cause <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. The definition of over is continuously stretching more and more. Yeah, and more. Re- redefined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when uh, we first started this podcast, we were like, yeah, we're going to do hour-long episodes. And then the first episode was like an hour 10. And the second one was an hour 25. And the third one was an hour 40. <laughs> yeah. And as we just, you know, fall more and more into our rut, into our stride here, we just, you know, find more and more things to talk about that are relevant. But last time that you were on with us, Craig, we did the, uh, the Dragon Reborn. We've continued on with everything through the ending of Knife of Dreams. So for today, everybody, we are diving finally into the Brandon Sanderson trilogy of the Wheel of Time, beginning with The Gathering Storm up through Chapter 25, Into Darkness. So at this point, I pass this off to Drew so that he can give us a kindly recap of what we've read for this week. Drew, take it away, dude. Yeah. So uh, this book picks up pretty directly after the events of Knife of Dreams. We get some some kind of recap with uh, Perrin and Fayil. Uh, Fayil kills Masima finally, and Ew. they uh, kind of consolidate everything and leave Malden. Uh, meanwhile, Rand is. Uh, I loved it. I'm sorry. Rand is relegated to the meanwhile portion yeah, of yeah. this synopsis. <laughs> That's just great. That's great. Uh, uh, he he is in the uh, manor house in Tyr, but very quickly moves to Aradoman, where he reveals his sort of logistical plan for Tarman Gaidon. But very quickly, things start to unravel as food is spoiling and uh, and a, a bit of treachery from within releases Semiraj from her captivity. She collars Rand, tries to force Rand to kill Min. Rand breaks out by using the true power and Balefire's Semiraj. Damn. So, uh, yeah, some some fireworks in that storyline. Meanwhile. Yeah, meanwhile, Egwene is <laughs> Sorry, what still... other main characters are going to be meanwhiles here? Let's... Oh, they're all meanwhiles. Oh, okay. <laughs> they have been for a few books now. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, Egwene is doing her thing in the White Tower. Uh, I'm sorry. You can't just gloss over that. This is some of the best stuff in the whole series. Egwene back in the White Tower. I would say some we'll, of we'll the best Egwene. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get, get to that. that. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, but yeah, she's she's undermining Elida's rule from within. She is establishing rapport with uh, Aes Sedai and specifically like sitters and heads of Ajaz and uh, Sylviana and kind of proving her strength as a person and not just buckling under and saying, yes, I'm a novice. Um, yeah, and then uh, that's, I mean, more or less where we're left at about halfway through this book. What's Matt doing? <laughs> uh, I mean, still Pissing getting off away Drew, from the Shantan. And... Yeah, is that why uh, you didn't want to bring him up? Is that I didn't particularly want to bring him up. 
because uh, oh, but I will. Yeah, do that we'll later. we'll get to that. I we'll will get do to that, that later. I'll make sure <laughs> to do that. Should we jump right into um, style though? Yes, because this is uh, one of the most important books in the series to cover actual writing style. Okay. So Rob. Take it away. Well, I do want to, first off, before we, we get any further into the weeds here, I want to discuss this epigraph that I love so mm -hmm. much at the beginning here. It might be my favorite. I know I made a big case for the Shadow Rising uh, when we got to that epigraph, but I, oh my god, these have been our days. Oh, just the verbatim, the the, the, the nuance. It's such a good way to start, and it's such a, a promising note for what Brandon Sanderson's going to deliver. What do you guys think? Yeah, I vividly remember when I first got this book, reading that epigraph and just I mean, chills. You know, you're it, it it spoke with the voice of the fans. You know, the, what what is That's it? That's a good you know, point. They rain upon us beneath a dead sky, crushing us with their fury until, as one, we beg, let it begin. <laughs> I hadn't considered I, that. That's so. Brilliant. That's very cool. The, the thing that jumps out to me from the epigraph here is uh, in that second paragraph, uh, the dead are beginning to walk and some see them. Others do not. But more and more, we all fear the night. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is one of those things where if you've taken a creative writing course or if you've talked about writing, you know, for 10 minutes, you hear this all the time. But if you want to make a point, if you want to make it stick, you do it in monosyllables, yes. right? And this is like... This is good prose 101. Yeah. <laughs> where we all fear the night, and it's so powerful and so strong as just a direct statement. Uh, but it, it's powerful, strong, and colorful, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, vivid imagery in this. And, and it really sets the scene, especially because we move directly into um, uh, a Renald Fanoir. And is that the farmer dude? That is the yeah. farmer dude. The farm, and, uh, I mean, farmer dude is... That's like my version of Meanwhile with the yeah. farmer dude. <laughs> uh, but farmer yeah, dude so this is one of the few whole Robert Jordan scenes in this book. Okay, so I, I, uh, wanted, to, I wanted to ask, though, like, what about the epigraphs? Do we know if he had any involvement writing the epigraphs, like one or two or three of them, maybe just portions of them. Do we have any idea, or could this be entirely... I do not. Okay. That's it. Uh, I have not out. heard anything as far as, like, direction on the epigraphs. Uh, That's so cool. My guess, though, is that at least the first epigraph here is Brandon. Because yeah, one of the things that was a, a hallmark of Robert Jordan's epigraphs was beyond just the, you know, the effective, powerful prose that... Craig noted there was a lyricism to them. They were often rhyming couplets, things like that. There was they were poetry. Yeah. This is not poetry. This is a hammer to the face. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. And so to me that felt like something Brandon probably wrote and that he very specifically wrote it in a different style to like you said to to drive it home like look, we're not messing around here. No more flowery rhymes. Let well, it begin. <laughs> should we have actually discussed the foreword? I didn't even consider that until just now. Uh, he pretty much addresses everything we're going to address in the style point here, uh, at least in, in some fashion or other. Um, I found it, I found it awesome because he does exactly what he what he promises to do right out of the gate. He said to think of it as the same script being directed by a different director, and I, I found that really quaint. Like 
he shows immediately that he's not kidding around with this epigraph. It was just so good. And as you said, Drew, with this uh, this opening, uh, well, I guess I call it the uh, the prologue opening scene with Reynald Fanwar, being written by Robert Jordan, is just such an excellent pairing to start us off like on this journey. It's just oh, I get it's so it's so perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, and it, that that scene specifically brings in all of the imagery we would expect you know the gathering clouds the this renewal of a theme that we had from back in crown of swords and path of daggers where people are like the storm is coming you know they they don't know what the storm is but they know the storm is coming and they're being moved to act you know the the pattern is pulling on their threads nudging them in in the direction it wants in the direction it needs for all the pieces to be in place for the last battle heck yes and the wind our introductory wind (laughs) is a little different this time around finally it's interrupted by something yes it doesn't just continue on and course through our characters scene and introduce us nicely as it crosses west into era doman it apparently slams into something unnatural spawned by the darkness to the north like we we can gather that this has been happening already behind the scenes like we had an extreme drought and then we had an extreme winter but this is the first time in the series where we get it on page one we see that something is deeply wrong with the world and i I just i felt that i felt so it felt so ominous to me yeah well you guys no i i think you're you're spot on with that it's there, there's so much in in the writing and in the decisions, the storytelling decisions in this book to very deliberately signal a shift in the series. Mm-hmm. It's saying that the end is nigh, not just, you know, the, the war, the, the last battle is nigh, but the end of the series is at hand. Because when, we, when we pull back, you remember Robert Jordan only planned one more book. When he was writing this scene with, with uh, Renaud Fenoir, he was anticipating that being probably the first scene of the last book. You know? So a lot of these, uh, the directions I imagine that he left for Brandon in the early stages of this book were along that same vein. Like saying, look, we're, we're in the end game now. <laughs> I like the phrasing there. Very nicely done. Um, how about pacing? Should we discuss the pacing of this book and how it differs from Robert Jordan's pacing? Uh, sure. What's the chapter count in this book versus I think Jordan 50, 52? I believe it's 50. Uh, and how does that compare? Because as I read it, that's one of the things that I remember is, you know, I'm sure you'll have more to talk about with this in in uh, the second and third Sanderson books. <laughs> yeah. but, so I was curious about it with this one. I, I, I couldn't quite remember. Uh, yeah, so there are 50 chapters in this. Uh, and, and it's interesting because that's not an unheard of number for Robert Jordan. Some of the middle of the series, Shadow Rising had like 55. Yeah. I think Lord of Chaos had over 60. Uh, but in the more recent books, in Knife of Dreams, Crossroads of Twilight, Winter's Heart, Path of Daggers, we were in the 30s. Because he was stretching those chapters out more. Yeah, the, the chapters were much longer and the books were getting shorter. This book, the, all three of the Brandon books are among the longest in the series. And, uh, but, but not, not such an amount longer that you would think, oh, there's, there are 50% more chapters. Uh, but Brandon definitely does write 
tend to write shorter chapters. We see it in his Wheel of Time books, other than the infamous Last Battle chapter, of course. But we see it in the Wheel of Time books that he did. We especially see it in the Stormlight Archive, where we have books with 130 chapters. Yeah. You know, like that's Granted, an insane like number. And 25% and so, longer than these ones are. But still, I mean, they're not double the length. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think there's something to the pacing picking up in part because the chapters are becoming shorter. And it it gives, whether this is the substance or not, it gives at least the appearance of movement yeah. more than when you're stuck in an 8,000-word Elaine Bath. chapter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, pacing, how do we feel, man? I, I, no, I think uh, Drew has said it. I couldn't say it any better than that. I'm... It, it's it helps when we marry this idea of uh, increased pacing to what you guys already talked about with the intro and how you you've got all these signals to the reader that uh, this is not the same thing as what you've been reading already yeah. whether it's in the foreword or in uh, the the uh, uh, what do we call it? the epigraph yeah. um, there's all these signals and one of them is things are going faster you know, you even if it's only an appearance, because we do spend a lot of time in certain locations. It's not necessarily that the story is actually moving faster, mm-hmm. but just the shorter chapters gives you the impression of, like you said, Drew, more movement. I like the way you said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, <coughs> it, I don't know. Maybe this is something that manifests in in the sort of collective consciousness of the fandom, because even to this day, you'll get conversations about the Brandon books versus the Robert Jordan books. And the biggest thing that rises to the surface is Matt. Uh, well, Brandon books, Brandon's books are faster. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. that a lot of people say that like, he saved the series. He's the one who got the wheels turning again. You know, good. I disagree I, with that, especially because knife of dreams is so good. bombastic. I'm, I'm so, so much that happens in that book, but I, but this is very much a continuation of that renewed pacing that Robert Jordan established in Knife of Dreams, where instead of these heavy themes in Lord of Chaos through Crossroads of Twilight, where there's miscommunication everywhere, people are being stymied at every turn, they're they're being bogged down in their pursuit of their goals, now characters are achieving their goals. And the the lines of communication are starting to reopen. People are starting to come back together for the first time since the Dragon Reborn. You know? Yeah. I'm really, really glad that you actually brought up the discussion among the fandom and what comes for you know first and foremost when they get into this kind of discussion. Um, the pacing of Brandon's being, you know, in, in my head, it goes immediately quicker. Brandon picks up the pace. That's how I've looked at it over these past few years. But I will say... I'm starting to feel like, especially coming fresh out of Knife of Dreams, as you just covered, Drew, I feel like people either overestimate how much quicker the pace really gets here or underestimate just how much really was going on in Knife of Dreams. Because that's that's a mistake that I made. Let let me jump in for... I'm going to represent the casual fans here. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) look, I love the Wheel of Time. I just don't... You know, I don't know it the way that you guys know it, right? Um, Hey, man, you might know better than I do. 
Well, <laughs> but I was going to say, I think um, for the mega fans out there, the people who live and breathe the Wheel of Time constantly, the Drew yes. um, like the Drew McCaffreys of the world, for instance, I think there's a tendency among some of those people to underestimate or undervalue just how slow the slog is for those yeah. who aren't 100% bought in. Okay, and people can can rant and rave and disagree with me all they want, but this is I'm not the only one who says, mm-hmm. you know, books, what, 8 through 10 maybe, depending on, depending on your tastes, uh, are just incredibly slow. So Knife of Dreams, yes, it does pick up the way you're talking about. I don't think we should discount that at all, but I also don't think that Knife of Dreams by itself washed out that taste of uh, the slog from a lot of people's mouths. And so, you know, when you when you go to Knife of Dreams, and yes, it does pick up, but it's still, you're like, oh, this Robert Jordan guy, man, he loves to dwell on these, <laughs> these certain things. And when we go now to A Gathering yeah. Storm, <clears throat> it's, it's a chance for a reader's brain to reset and say, no, it's a new author, so you're able to see that yeah. better. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's and exactly what it is. That's it, and this was also the biggest gap in real world time in the series. Where, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was this book came out in what oh nine, and uh, Knife of Dreams was oh five. Right. You know, that's a, a four year gap. There was a lot of time for people to uh, sort of readjust themselves to the state of the Wheel of Time after Knife of Dreams, and to establish new expectations for what Brandon Sanderson was going to come in with. I also think a a part of what may influence that is that we knew it was Brandon Sanderson writing it. They didn't just drop a new book out and be like, oh, by the way, we had this guy write it. Yeah, we had a ghostwriter. From the get-go, everybody knew Brandon Sanderson's the one who's going to finish it. And I know many, many people, upon hearing that news, went straight out and bought Mistborn. All of his books, yeah. But, but especially Mistborn. Right. And Mistborn, again, fast-paced. That, that yeah, first at that point, moves. it was well of Ascension, though. I mean... No, when when it was announced, only Mistborn, The Final Empire, was out. No, it was not. It was December of 2007, and Well of Ascension had just come out. Mm. It, it had just been released. Well of Ascension came out like fight, a month before fight, that. Fight, 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 fight. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm like 95% sure. Don't. I'm not 100 but I'm like, I bet money on it. I'm, I'm not positive of this, but... Fact down! Way, people were going out and reading The Final Empire. Like, they weren't going out and buying The Well of Ascension as their first book to read by Brandon Sanderson. They were reading The Final Empire. Oh, and that is a fast-paced book. August 21st, 2007, Well of Ascension. So Well of Ascension had already been out for four months. Okay. Uh, Do a little dance. But anyway, my point... Is that people weren't going out and buying the Well of Ascension? They were buying the Final Empire, yeah, which is a fast-paced, intense book, and so a lot of people, you know, would read that and say, "Okay, this is the style we're going to get for the Wheel of Time going forward now," and that's exciting. I mean, it was certainly exciting for me. Uh, I, by pure luck, I had picked up the Final Empire like a, two weeks before Robert Jordan died, and. Uh, and I loved it. And then when they announced it was Brandon Sanderson finishing, I was like, oh, heck, yeah. You know, like, I'm going to go buy uh, Elantris now. You know, I got to yeah. check this out, too. And, like, uh, it, there was definitely a palpable excitement in the fandom. 
Definitely. knowing that Brandon Sanderson, that this guy who can write a, a fast-paced, intense, action-packed story like The Final Empire, is the one who's going to be finishing The Wheel of Time. And I'm sorry, but we should probably also note here that that may have excited the fans, but that's not what got him the job. That is also very true. Uh, the first half of Elantris got him the job. Yep. Wait, what? And, yep. yep. And so Harriet read the first half of Elantris. I, nobody knows quite how it... Uh, you know how he came across her radar some people theorize that so Tor, Tor she, said hey I've got a guy she said that uh, at least from what I know well, she, of Harriet she said she read his eulogy see that's what oh I that's right but somebody eulogy, somebody sent yeah. her the eulogy okay I don't know so, who it was but she read that and, and she was like wow that was beautiful and then she went and picked up Elantris so she picked up picks up Elantris reads the first half and says yep he's the guy yeah sign him God, yeah. see, this is this is very similar, but also very distinctly different to what I heard. I heard it had been that she had read his eulogy, she was touched by his eulogy, and then she mm -hmm. has been so she had been so impressed by the Final Empire that she decided she did this not is read the Final Empire. It was wow. Elantris. Okay, yeah. she, and wow, and and after I'm, a long, I'm just gonna take Elantris. I'm gonna take this opportunity. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry to just say Elantris is amazing. It is a wonderful book. And people who hate on it need to calm down and realize that it's amazing. <laughs> Even if you don't think it's the best Brandon book out there, it's in the 98th percentile of fantasy books. Preach. I, I agree with pretty much everything you just said. I know Drew is such a huge fan of Elantris, particularly for the manner in which it focuses on the characters more than it does on the spectacle and the awe. Yep. Um, and, the, and the journey of the characters themselves. I But... Uh, it, uh, for me, right, going, this is, uh, Elantris this is, is not my least favorite fantasy I did. book. I, will say <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to totally derail this. I just, you know, I want every, everybody it's listening okay. out there. I'm just, just stop listening to Rob. Stop listening to whoever else. And it's okay. I'm giving you permission to love Elantris. I That's what the, I'm doing here. I guess the and reason. now we can go back to Robert Jordan. That's oh, fine. Hang on, That's hang fine. on. I'm not, I'm just, one more thing. I'm, <laughs> I guess the reason I'm focusing on this so much is because I'm so flabbergasted to learn that Harriet made that call based on brandon's abilities in yeah. because elantris, elantris is phenomenal <laughs> as a character story it's it's phenomenal it, it definitely so is what what i think uh what really did it for her was the the voice in elantris it was the ability to create a world that felt mythological and lived in that attracted her to Brandon that that made her think this is a guy who can step into the wheel of time and handle the world yeah yeah I mean I'll still say Brandon Sanderson's worst book is still far better than a lot of authors best book best books will ever be like it's still yeah that's that's definitely phenomenal true book. calamity is better than a lot of sort of truth books <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh boy oh, you I, oh that's a loaded <laughs> statement right. Okay, continuing so on. That, hot takes remember today. that time we all read The Gathering Storm and we talked about that? Yeah, why, yeah. Hey, guys, why do your episodes keep getting longer? I couldn't tell you, man. It couldn't have anything have to do no with idea. the copious amounts of beer we like to ingest on the show as well. Yeah, um, definitely not, um, not I, bad either. I do want to take this, this style discussion because I still have a lot of points about style, but I have something in a completely different direction I want to talk about. And I, okay. I know Drew's going to be you know chomping at the bit to get at me for this one. I think oh it's boy. time that we have a brief discussion. We, if anything, if we can make anything brief, um, about the the pronunciation of a particular Forsaken's name. Okay, we've mentioned this oh in the past, boy. fleetingly, 
But now that she's kind of a centerpiece of a lot of the problems surrounding Rand right now, let's talk about the Lady of Pain. Semirog? Thank you! Oh my god, thank you! Uh, oh god, Craig? E on the end. I know this. Yes, okay, Let me finish. All through my teenage years and my young adult life, I pronounced her, way, her name in the way. I pronounced it Semirage for, for my whole life. My whole life. But lately, after hearing the audiobook, Drew, I'm starting to like the simple aesthetic of that hard G, Semirog. It sounds far more demonic that way. It's like unholy. It's got this this note of this... this it's like this a bell rog. Yes, Balrog, Semirog. Yeah, but there's uh, no E on the no, end of Balrog. Does it? <laughs> okay, listen, okay, here's my retort to that. Well, first off, let's think about what the Forsaken represent. They represent demons. It sounds more demonic, demonic royalty in a way. But what you just said there, Drew, it's pronounced, it, it's got like a, the E at the end of it. If you're going to tell me that the letters T-A-I-M can be pronounced time, then you have to give me something here for, for maybe swapping out a hard G. Well, or, no, or that's no, just, that's no, just no, phonetics. That's yeah. simple phonetics. No, but if, if <laughs> we're going to go with, on. well, there's an it's E tame. on the end, so it has to be I a soft G, then it like. should be Semirage, right? Well, my, Drew so, pronounces it Semirage. I've heard you say it yeah. a few times on the show, which yeah, reminds like, me of When hemorrhage. I'm talking, I, I would just say Semirage. Which, oh, again, that's a I don't like that at filthy, all. That's my least horrible, favorite of all three of these pronunciations. <laughs> so I, I I wish I had like one of the earlier books in the series with me because in the glossary they have pronunciations, like phonetically written out pronunciations for the words, and that's where I got my pronunciation yeah, but, of. Simmered. But you can't. But you also say Egwene when it's pronounced pronounced Egwene. Uh yeah, well, because I didn't need to look in the glossary to pronounce Egwene. <laughs> Apparently, you do though. Well, yeah, but <laughs> so, they, but that's my point is like, I only looked it up in the glossary if like a character had a really weirdly challenging name, like Swan. Swan is such I had a, yeah. no so idea. Like I wanted Swan. to say like Siwan, what? And then I looked, I was like, oh, Swan. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I said Siwan. Or, or Kyrian. Like I wanted to say Kerhean, you know, and oh, then really? I looked in the, in the glossary. I was like, oh, Kyrian. Okay. Oh, interesting. But I, so I, things I, like that. I still want to point out that for the first time. 15 years of reading the wheel of time i said semirage but i'm liking yeah. sem uh, i like semirog now it just sounds so demonic and unnatural and twisted it's horrific See, I, I feel like it's it's it doesn't do her enough justice like yeah, semirage to me sounds so much more sinister than because like semirog is like it's like muddy and like glottal and like that's not her what are you talking she's about? she's she's a lady of and, pain yeah, but is she's she... she's so precise and deft and like. So basically, what you're saying is she is the sponsor of the last five minutes of this podcast because uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I am just I am just in misery. <laughs> this podcast brought to you with, by with... Semirage <laughs> for Drew's deep penetrating lore. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh man, I don't know. I st I still we're, like, we're off to a flying start. Today. I still don't. I still don't like this. Is, this is fantasy. Robert Jordan could say it's pronounced banana pie if he wants to. Like it's it's his right to do that. I don't agree with that, but <laughs> I I like just now. I'm finally starting to tip towards Semirag. But Semiraj Semiraj was how I pronounced it for like the first 15 years. And I still, anybody who says that is going to be like, okay, well, they're, they're probably saying it the right way, I guess. I'll admit that. Well, as long as you don't say Mogadine, then, then we're fine. Mogadine, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about Brandon's dialogue. We've very briefly kind of covered this already. Um, yeah. Particularly coming out of Crossroads of Twilight, where I was like, I was frustrated with a lot of 
the politicking, the intricacies. Brandon's got this blunt, direct, unapologetic approach to how like how his characters are addressing one another that I found uh-huh. really refreshing. Like the the, the interrogation of Semiraj like really exhibits this. I will show you the weave someday. Like Jesus Christ. So Brandon's dialogue Yay or nay? I figure it's going to be yay, but for a lot of people that like his style also say they don't may not necessarily agree that it fits with the tone of the Wheel of Time. I don't necessarily agree, but I want to get both of your so, inputs on that. I, uh, okay, I will say one thing on this, and this is the only thing that I will say. Uh, a lot of people complain about Brandon's handling of Matt, and that's that's fine. That's that's where my brain goes when you're talking about the uh, the dialogue sure, here. Yeah. I can't really comment on the other characters so much. Uh, Brandon took Matt and tried to make him the uh, comic relief that he uses in a lot of his other books. Mm -hmm. And while Matt is funny and clever, he is not C-3PO. Right. Right. He's not the comic relief here. And that that's the only thing about it that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, dialogue-wise. Yeah. So uh, that kind of leads perfectly into what I was going to say about this, is that I don't think there's an easy catch-all yay or nay. Um, Brandon had an easier time with the voices of some characters than he did with others. Sure, totally characters understandable. Like, ter- characters like Cadswain, he did very well. Characters like Elida, like Rand, like Perrin, very, very well. Some other characters like Matt, Talmanis, mm, Avienda... Not see, okay, so well. Avienda, agree. Yeah, Matt and uh, Avienda, Talmanis. He, I see how he changed it. Sorry, go ahead. I'm gonna interrupt. Yeah, well, well, and and we're gonna keep track of this as we go into Towers of Midnight and A Memory of Light because he gets better. He gets. I think he he develops a better understanding of how those characters talk, not only speaking dialogue, but talking their their narration on the page. You know, because uh, because voice. In a limited third-person perspective, voice extends beyond just the dialogue in things inside quotations, but everything that is written is filtered through the lens of your point-of-view character. And so, uh, Brandon really struggled in The Gathering Storm to grasp the lenses of certain characters, while others, I thought he took to wonderfully... And he really nailed down the essences of those characters. And to me, in in this book especially, what he did the best was Rand, Cadswain, and Nynaeve. Okay. So, before we get on to Craig's thoughts about the, 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 the dialogue there, there's actually a question I just thought of asking you right now, Drew. Are there any characters that you might be tempted to say Brandon wrote better than Robert Jordan did? <laughs> See, that's a very dangerous question because then that that begs okay the question of who these characters really are. If they are a Robert Jordan character, surely he knew best. But are there any characters that you feel like were more fleshed out, more justified with in Brandon's hands than, for example, Robert Jordan had been treating them previously? Oh man, maybe give you some time to think on that. I th- Come back well, to that by the end. No, of the I I think the the immediate place my mind goes is Rand. Okay, same. I've, and I've, and same, this may yeah. be a little reactionary to the limited amount of Rand we've gotten in the last two books. Where Rand only had, what, like five or six chapters in Knife of Dreams and if only that, one sure. chapter in the epilogue in Crosswords of Twilight. He, there's so much more focus on him in this book. 
And he does a phenomenal job of developing Dark Rand. Of all the things Brandon Sanderson did in The Wheel of Time, I think his depiction of Rand in The Gathering Storm is the best. It is, it is the finest thing he did stepping into Robert Jordan's shoes to finish the series. Noise. Now let's give uh, Craig his chance to talk about the dialogue. Well, let, let me uh, kind of riff on that a little bit. The okay. reason, because I agree wholeheartedly that his treatment of Rand in this book is fantabulous. And what <laughs> here's what agrees. it is. Uh, I'm going to cast your minds in your way back machine. Go all the way back to book two. In my mind... Probably the most effective bit of writing that Jordan ever did. For me. Okay, yeah, everybody's going to have their own opinions, right? Can but I for guess? me. <laughs> yeah, do it, do it, do it. The Blade Master duel? Nope. Oh, okay. No. The best bit of writing that Robert Jordan ever did for me was Egwene Collard. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing so horrifying and just the abject terror that he's able to get through um, with Egwene in that situation and how, you know, that affects her character through the whole series. We don't really have anybody collared after book two, at least, you know, not any characters that we're following. And then finally, Brandon gives us Rand in a collar and he is able to recapture... Uh, and possibly improve upon what Robert Jordan did with Egwene yeah. and give it to Rand. And so and because we've followed these characters through all these books, and at least for me, it was so so effective a piece of writing that it stuck with me with little reminders here and there. This is one of those things that drives uh, Egwene's character, this collaring that she experienced in book two. Uh, but it was so effective, and the imagery and the emotion from the, those chapters were so effective that when Rand gets there, Brandon Sanderson knocked that bit out of the park. Well, we we have seen yeah. we have seen something very similar with the collaring uh, uh, before now, and that is with the mind trap that Morden is placing on Sindane and Mogedian. But we're not we're not rooting for those characters. No, it's not, no, no mean, we don't feel the horror for them that we do for right. our, our heroes. Well, I mean, damn, honestly, the mind trap. I would between the mind trap and the Adam, I'd rather the Adam or the domination band since I'm male. But like, I bet we're not we're not rooting for Sindane. We're not rooting for Mogedian. We are rooting for Egwene. And it is, it is horrifying. I, I do see what you're saying about those points of view that we got in The Great Hunt. Those were tough to read. And so seeing that brought, you know, in full force against Rand was was intimidating. So, uh, that, that chapter, the last that could be done, mm -hmm. when Rand has the domination band put around his neck, will always stay with me the memories I have of reading this book for the first time and getting to that scene, I don't think anything in, in, in the books that I had to wait for in the wheel of time, I don't think any single scene provided such a visceral reaction in me, a physical reaction to it. I was, shocked i was horrified you get that little that little feeling in the pit of your stomach oh, like yeah yeah and and for me like i'm i'm pretty open with the fact that i don't particularly like men holy cow was this horrifying to see rand 
being forced to kill her, okay. basically. And then, and then of course, he doesn't quite finish like, choking her out. But, but the descriptions of her, like, crying, you know, mm-hmm. and, and loving and his him hand even as around he choked her throat. Her. Yeah, it that was... Just, just horrible. And going into the style of this, I want to point out, when you look at the page... Oh? Short paragraphs... One-line paragraphs. Yep. The something you can't get through audiobook, by the way. Yeah, it, yeah. it's it, there's this staccato, um, frenetic feeling to the words on the physical page because it's written like this. You could you could have him say, "This can't be happening. I've killed her. I'm mad, Ilyena." You could have all of that in one paragraph. Instead, he breaks that into four different lines. And that gives each of those lines a greater gravity. And so, it's this deliberate decision to not only write these heavy, intense, emotional beats in the scene, but to physically structure your sentences in a way to drive it home. It was a brilliant, brilliant work on Brandon's part. Yeah, they definitely stand more distinct from one another when he delivers them one at a time. They're not being lost in a wall of text that you see sometimes. Um, I, I definitely loved with <clears throat> what Brandon did during the scene. And this this was something I had saved for my Rand-centric discussion. But I'll take one of these points out and follow up on what Drew just said there. Because I think it follows nicely. The last that could be done, this entire chapter, I wrote just what a scene I, I can't believe how amazing it was and when i reached it for the first time i think this is the point at which i formally decided that i liked what brandon was doing and i proved what brandon was doing with the wheel of time yep. there's so much power there's so much destruction of Rand's character in this this final step into his journey of becoming darth rand if you'll permit me that <laughs> phrase there like realizing that he has access to the true power like it, it not only changed everything that I thought was possible, but my opinion of Rand's journey and where it's taking him. Like, I was terrified by the implication in that as a new reader, and I, I can only commend Brandon Sanderson for achieving that. Yeah, I vividly remember after reading this scene, thinking legitimately for the first time, is Rand going to turn to the shadow, or is there at least a danger of that happening? Oh, the, the, I, I hadn't considered that even as a possibility. I very much felt that there was the, like, I could see it happening. And, and that was never the case before this. Yeah. Yeah. Craig. And that's great writing. If you can make your reader think that the main hero. 12 books in. In a heroic fantasy. Yep. 12 books in could in fact become the villain is that's pretty incredible stuff yeah no definitely anything to add craig before i finish off this style discussion no 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 no. you go ahead okay so i just have one more style discussion point here we can move on straight into randall thor which sounds like a, a great point to start with but really quickly before we do i want to talk about brandon's utilization of point of view because drew you've been hammering this about robert jordan for the past uh-huh. 20, 25 episodes, just off the top of my head. Um, But chapter 10 of The Gathering Storm is one of my favorite sequences in in all of Brandon's Wheel of Time work. The first meeting between Rand and Rodel Iteralde. 
Yeah. The way the great captain looks at him, thinks about him, unconsciously comes to respect him. From his point of view, it's just it's 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 downright intimidating for the reader on Eteralda's behalf. Like what like what a scene. This is a scene that rivals for me Rand's epic day that we talked about during Crown of Swords. Uh-huh. When he meets with the sea folk to establish the bargain and then he quells the rebels in tear just because he's feeling really good that day. But like context is important though, because in Crown of Swords, that was a day of triumph. In the Gathering Storm, it's tense like desperation. But from point of view, choosing to give us this scene from Iteralda's point of view, would you agree, Drew, specifically, since you've hammered on point of view so much before, that this is Brandon absolutely nailing one of Jordan's signature strengths as a writer? 100%. 100%. It, it's... Well, we know that Brandon idolized Robert Jordan to a certain yeah. you know, degree, and so... Uh, it makes sense that as Brandon was developing himself as a writer, that that was one of the things that he consciously or unconsciously worked with was uh, strategic point of view. And we feel yeah. he accomplished that, perhaps. And and I think this is something that he, to to compare point and contrast with the Stormlight Archive, Brandon Brandon is doing some very deliberate things with point of view in the Stormlight Archive, but he's um, he's limited himself for good reason in the Stormlight Archive, because he wants to avoid some of the pitfalls and major criticisms that stories like The Wheel of Time and A Song of Ice and Fire rightfully receive. And and that is, you know, the the character bloat. That you, you start getting so many different points of view from so many characters who are so minor that nobody really cares. And, and Brandon is limiting that purposely in the Stormlight Archive. But in here, because it is already established that you can just have so many different points of view, that it's easy for him to write a scene from Rodel Iteralda's point of view, where normally, like in, in the hands of another author, or in the hands of Brandon in the Stormlight Archive, would have to be from Rand's point of view. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that wraps up the the entirety of my style points. Anything else we want to add before we dive into Randall Thor? No, phrasing. but I I just want to talk about that phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if somebody was going to pick up on that. <laughs> so, we have finally arrived at darkest Rand. You know, things almost par- particularly right. No, I don't know, man. <laughs> at the very end here, the last that could be done. Does it get darker than this? Uh, I think there's an argument to be made. Natron Sparrow, perhaps? Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe. But things are just not going well for him. Or, or the world as a whole. And he's really beginning to reflect this in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, to begin, I mean, it, it must be so irritating. Just beyond irritating. To perform a feat, nay, a miracle. Like the cleansing of the source. And to still have all these other noobs doubting you. Like... I, I was a little affronted on, on Rand's behalf. You got to just man up and have your master plan, remember? Right. Yeah. See, this is exactly <laughs> what I'm going to be going on to right here. Check this out, Drew. I was a little affronted on Rand's behalf during his conversation with Harin of the Atha on Mir. Like, I so badly wanted him to just pull a juggernaut and just be like, bitch, do you know who I am? Like, this is a moment where Rand, a man with his master plan, would I'm, have been <clears throat> particularly I'm enjoyable. sorry. <laughs> was that an X-Men 3 reference? It may or may not have been. All right, yeah, I, was, uh, I should probably go. <laughs> uh, actually, I believe it was a reference to the, uh, the, 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 the parody that came out of the X-Men 
uh, <laughs> animated show directly before that, that X3 was then parodying of the parody <laughs> afterwards. Have you ever seen that cartoon? Oh, I'm the juggernaut, bitch! No, that's, that's off track. Let's talk about that later. Anyway. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. But random man with his master plan would have been so awesome right here in it's this so moment. Craig, are, talking are you to familiar Harim. with this? With random man and his master plan? No. Oh! So, uh, I mentioned this on a, on a previous episode, uh, but there was an old uh, Wheel of Time fan site called blacktower.net and they sure. had a, uh, a humor section and one of the humor pieces on there was this pretty poorly written poorly edited <laughs> short story called random man and his master plan that was just hysterical where it was basically Rand just saying you know what screw this screw all of you we're gonna do things my way and if you don't do things my way i'm gonna bail fire you and 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 he just goes around from like country to country and goes to sean chan and and just whips them all into shape and anybody who doesn't listen to him uh gets bail fired basically it's basically <laughs> Rand saying to every single person who disagree with him exactly what they all want Rand to say exactly what we all just want to hear <laughs> and Rand then say and then the last everybody. battle culminates in a battle of hungry hungry hippos <laughs> i haven't been that far into it yet damn although i loved his oh, interaction with the sean so great oh my god <laughs> My maid rips her braid out of her scalp. Yeah, we're going to have to send that one to Craig after this. Um, to, uh, I'm, to... I'm reading it right now, actually. Oh, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll have to post that link in our Facebook group. Uh, yeah, we referenced it before, but we haven't actually explained it too much, I don't think. Yeah. it's But but I, I very much understand what you're saying with that, Rob, where, where it's... You reach a certain point with Rand where, where there's a level of exasperation that... You, you almost cannot believe that these people are still being resistant, knowing, like, this guy is the Dragon Reborn, the last battle is starting, and they're still, you know, obfuscating they're things and, and, and stonewalling Rand's plans, and, like, yeah. Well, I mean, to your earlier point, Drew, we finally get a glimpse in this part that Rand very well could turn to the shadow. Yeah. You know, he is dark Rand at this point. And so I'm going to go ahead and cut some of these characters some slack and say, look, if if you're... Is, there's this prophecy, and it's not... A, this is not a, uh, a biblical prophecy. Like, this is not necessarily the Messiah coming to save us all. It could go either way. And, and they're watching him make these really, really... Wait, they know that really, the, the really, prophecies don't say that? Well, so the, what the prophecies say That's is prophecy he will save you that. and destroy and destroy you. you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, there there is definitely some I'm, some headspace that that can take up for yeah, these people. And yeah, so you know, people get really upset at at Egwene or uh, Tuwan for not uh, towing the line with Rand. And I'm like, look, you got to look at it from their perspective. Okay. Oh. I'm, I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. I can see that being justifiable from the point of view of somebody who doesn't know any better. Like we see earlier in the series, pardon me, that there's a lot of <clears throat> people who, from Backwater Villages, for example, we might have seen it during the Raven's Prologue and Eye of the World. Don't quote me on that. But there are a lot of uneducated people who simply confuse the dragon with the Dark One. That kind yeah. of thing, you know. So, but but for yeah. people who have been around him, who have been interacting with him, who know his his role in the prophecies, who ha- who are dealing with him as uh, a you know a foreign ruler and like it, somebody like Harin Din Togara Twins should not be doubting him. Somebody maybe from like a backwater village in in Murindi who has never even heard of the dragon. Okay, I can see that. But from somebody like her, 
I think, I mean, I don't think, I know. I know I expected a lot more out of her in terms of how much she trusts Rand, or at least how much faith she has in what he says. Mm -hmm. I remain unconvinced. Well, I mean, this just goes back to point of view, where, you know, what we've talked about so much in this is how, um, you know, it's easy to fall victim to the point of view trap. When we're in Rand's head, we're going to be frustrated because Rand is frustrated. And when we're in, you know... Egwene's head we get frustrated about the things she's frustrated about and so it's it's not always easy as a reader to pull yourself out of that point of view and consider other perspectives on a situation hmm. um going on with Rand though I want to ask a question and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong but Rand is he's he's finally completing this journey into a, an official tyrant or or maybe just conqueror is the word that I want to use because what he does here is he sends the Aiel to capture the Domani merchant council yeah is now this is an outright conquering move that he, like even before when he stormed Ilion like he was still doing so under the premise of ousting Samael and and liberating mm-hmm. them from the fist of one of the forsaken but here he's only operating on the faintest hunch that Grendel is in Era Doman. So how do we feel about this move? Well, I mean, he's certainly Dark Rand. I mean... Right. Now, is this like I, the first I, time I, he's are done... You looking like... for us, are you looking for us to excuse what he's doing? No, no, no. I, I, first, I'm, I'm asking, is it the first time we've actually seen this kind of a conquering move? Because I can't think of another one earlier than this. Um, but then, uh, yeah, going on from that, I do want to ask if we agree with a move like this. What about Ilion? You know, well, but Ilion, like he was Rob conquering. Was saying, Sorry, he, he was, was liberating. He was, yeah, liberating. Yeah. Because yeah. he knows for a fact that Samael was, was Lord Brand. In Era Doman, he only has, like, the tiniest hunch that Grendel has to be out here somewhere. All these events have her fingerprints all over them. He doesn't have any concrete evidence that the Forsaken is ruling there or, or, or ruining these people's lives. But he still sends the Aiel not to negotiate, but to capture the Domani Merchant Council. I'm just asking about the morality of that move in particular. Even if you agree with it, if you think it was necessary, just what do you think of, of, of Rain's decision to do that? And is this officially where he decides, all right, I'm going to do whatever is necessary. I'm now a conqueror. More Well, you know, I think we have a tendency as modern audiences to impose our uh, our own... Uh, what am I trying to say? Our own preferences on our heroes, right? And so we look, when we see Rand is a ruler, right? He's the dragon reborn. He is in charge. He's uh, he's one of the elite. He's one of the, the damn one percenters, right? The elite, yes. And we, so we look at that and we go, well, but we want democracy. We want him to sit down and talk to Egwene, and we, we want him to talk to, um, you know, Tuan or whatever other world mm-hmm. leaders, and and f- come to an agreement, figure something out. Where, you know, in reality, it's the situation and the cultural implications involved here may not allow for that sort of thing. And so, uh, while I don't like seeing Rand the autocrat, uh, at a certain point, it's like you know he knows in a way that you want all these other characters to know that the last battle is here and he needs to have as many banners under his flag as he can. He needs to take territory and command armies. And if some, if some pissant merchant council is getting in my way, take them out. 
yeah. get so, him out of here. So, so you this, know? Is, yeah. this is a trust in Rand thing, is what you're saying, yeah? Right, and and so like I said, I mean, this is Dark Rand, and so you, from my perspective, it's it's understandable that people would look at that and be really uneasy. Yeah. But from Rand's perspective, it makes perfect sense to to unite them at all costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a necessity. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Interesting. Um, anything, I mean, I'll give you guys a chance to talk about Rand. I have a lot of points here to still get out of the way, but let's hear something you. go, you man. What do you, you want to talk about? Yeah, you, you, go again? you run with this. I, I, I mostly got out, out of the way everything I wanted to say about okay. Rand, so. Okay, so, um, a place to begin this chapter. A place to begin. Um, it's everything I wanted to get during Crossroads of Twilight, during, during a lot of Knife of Dreams, even. All right, so there's a lot of there's a lot of Rand in Knife of Dreams, but it's a lot of setting things up. It's like he's beginning to pull things together for the last yeah. battle. But here yeah. we have Rand directly confronting what he has to do, directly thinking about his task and and, and and thinking about his options, like realizing that he must break the seals. That was a big moment for me. That was terrifying. What about you guys? Uh, you know, I feel like in a way I'm kind of getting back into the style discussion here, but one of the things that Robert Jordan does is he puts a lot of um, thought processes and stuff, not, not always, I mean his books, he, he wrote 11 books for a reason, but a lot of times he'll put it into subtext, um, and that's one thing that Brandon does in this book is he takes the subtext and just makes it text, Yeah. so that you can actually <laughs> yeah, kind of figure out what it is Rand is thinking as he goes through all these uh, decisions. Yeah, and the subject makes a text. I, I like can that. see how some people might say like that's a, a criticism of Brandon Sanderson. I don't think it is because uh, it's refreshing. It's something that we needed to finally get from Rand because going back to the Shadow Rising when Rand is studying the prophecies of the dragon, he doesn't tell us what his plans are. You know, it, anytime he's discussing his plans, it's because Robert Jordan's so freaking good with point of view. It's in Egwene's point of view. It's in Matt's point of view. Like, you know, it's in Warren's point of view. It's like, it's not, it's it's never given to us in a situation where we can just get Rand's thoughts on what he's planning. It, it's all shrouded in mystery and we have to piece together his actions to figure out what his goal is. And here, it's no longer that. It's Warren Rand's head. Rand is putting those pieces together for us yeah finally <laughs> yeah and um pretty much wraps up my uh randall thor points of view um oh mm-hmm. except for for the ex- for the, sorry for the exile of cad swan sorry cad swain jesus christ i went back to that's my the second time you've done that <laughs> sorry and everybody in these books is suddenly italian <laughs> yeah no I, I used to pronounce it that way as a teenager it kind of just slipped out again but he I exiles no idea Cad yeah. and he promises to kill her if he should ever see her face again. Like, wow! Yeah. I even though I hated Cad Swain at this point when I first read this, never had like had I been so disturbed to get exactly what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. The ambivalence that I had about this scene and that I still have about this scene are just extraordinary. So yeah, that wraps up everything okay. I have to say about Randolph Thor. Cool. Uh, who do you want to move on to? Egwene. All right, let's do let's it. Let's do it. Let's do it, because I want to hear what Craig's got to say first. Uh, right, Craig, do you want to start us off? I love Egwene. Okay. I love Egwene. Okay. Just and, in general. Okay. I'm done. I'm done. That's all. I, I... Is <laughs> okay. that not enough analysis for you guys? It's uh, so... 
Mm. No, that it, look, this is one of the reasons I love Egwene is because of this book and i i frankly i enjoy her character throughout the entire series that's not to say that i love every single thing that she does but i love her character um but this is Egwene in this book is a bit like okay if we're as long as we're going back and talking about brandon's other stuff uh it's a bit like reading some of the characters in elantris and drew and i were kind of talking about this a little bit earlier today one of the things i love about elantris is that it's not about character development, but it's about character testing in mm. a lot of situations where you have these characters who are already kind of where they need to be for this story and for the trials they're about to face, and then hell on earth gets thrown at them and you see what happens, yeah. right? And that that's what we get with Egwene here, where um, the like, what's the most unthinkable thing that could happen? For her, she, she Elida gets her hands on her. She's prisoner. She's captive. She's uh, she's literally imprisoned, and you know, told to renounce her claim and all this stuff. Well, we've uh, okay, so we've had a bunch of Egwene character development for eleven books, and now, I mean, not that it hasn't been put to the test before, but now this is the ultimate Egwene test, and I would say even more so if I if you don't mind if I spoil a little bit going yeah, forward. Go for it. She's she's going to be a big part of the last battle. Um, and I think it's later in this book with the surprise attack yes. by Sean Chan and all that stuff. Like there will be more exciting, quote unquote exciting things that happen. But this moment with her imprisoned by Elida and going through uh, standing up to the Red Aja and all that through this book, this is the point at which she is most put to the test and she passes the test with flying colors and i think some people might find it boring or they they didn't like Egwene to begin with and so they don't like this section because it concentrates so much on her but i i think it's uh it's so satisfying to me after 11 books of her uh character development to see that finally put to the test mm -hmm. and and to like I say, satisfying is a great word for it for me to watch her go it's, through it. The White Tower is her crucible. Yes. and Good word for it. So last week in, in our, uh, or was it two weeks ago? I don't remember where we cut off in, in Night Dreams. But anyway, we talked about uh, Honey in the Tea. That the one Egwene chapter in Knife of Dreams. That was part one. And how, in my opinion, that is the finest chapter of Egwene in the entire series. It is okay. phenomenal writing. It is... Everything good about Egwene is on display, on full display. She is she is just brilliant in all aspects. That the themes of that continue into the Gathering Storm, and and this is her true testing ground, and this is where her you know her final form, so to speak, comes to fruition. It's it's where she, you know, she goes Super Saiyan when the yeah, the Shan attack the tower. Um, but the only reason that I don't like it as much in this book as I did in Knife of Dreams is because, and, and I'm not sure if this is a Brandon Sanderson failing or a Robert Jordan plotting failing. Or a Drew McCaffrey failing. <laughs> it, it gets cheapened a little bit because the eyes Sedai around her are so stupid. Okay. Okay. Her, her achievements don't hit home as well because, like, she barely even has to work. Like, when she meets with the white sitters, these are, like, 
the women who are supposed to be the epitome of logical right. eyes right. could you not and argue their entire conversation is bereft of logic and and so it, it, like it, it's frustrating to me because i saw Egwene being set up for all of this glory where where she, her versatility and her uh the the fact that she was never pigeonholed into an aja gives her the ability to engage with and overcome the ideals of all of the other Ajas and how they've become so focused on one thing that they're short-sighted and she can see beyond that and she can outmaneuver them because of it. But ultimately, she beats them in this book because they're stupid. Like, <laughs> Could you not argue though, it, that that's the Aes Sedai testing her more than actually needing help? No, I, I, that's not at all what it is. The, the whole thing is set up as like her triumphing in these arguments over them when the arguments themselves are like flawed and illogical and it's like like give give her something of substance to achieve okay because yes she achieves but but it's not as good as it could have been and that's my frustration like i still like Egwene in this book for the most part but i i just it, it didn't uh hit home for me with the expectation i had coming out of her brief time in Knife of Dreams where where it is just unmitigated glory. Okay. Like so so that's that's my only <clears throat> real criticism of Egwene in this book, if you can like call it criticism of her, because it's not as criticism of, about either the characters around her or how those characters were written. Hmm. So. Um well, I'll follow up on that and I'll say for me, I'm 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 leaning a lot more on, on Craig's side of the fence for this particular discussion. I, I don't feel like we're on opposite side of the fence mm -mm. here, but yeah, no, I get you. Uh, this, for yeah. me, is no yeah, question, like bar none, unequivocally, without peer and leaving no doubt in my mind, my favorite Wheel of Time Egwene. Knife of Dreams was decent. I like Drew, you, you nailed it on the head. Knife of Dreams Egwene I found to be palatable and enjoyable, and I looked forward to what she had coming. And, uh, and to a lesser extent, I liked... I liked her a lot in Lord of Chaos, if I'm not mistaken as well. Uh, but for me, watching her step up her pace in her confrontations with Elida, you know, yeah. seeing her directly condemn this woman more <laughs> brazenly and logically when not in her presence as well. Like, Egwene is a total badass during these scenes for the most part. Like, mm -hmm. it, it's it's not hard to believe that this is the Egwene that discovered the party leaving Emmons Field with Moiraine and Land back in the Eye of the World and, and demanded to ride along. Not decided, but demanded to ride along. It's mm -hmm. surreal, but it's, it's, it's appropriate. Like, despite some of the gripes that I had and then that Drew had with Egwene for the middle portion <laughs> of this series and for the end portion that I will have. Uh, the Gathering yeah. Storm is the only book that I can honestly say excites me about Egwene's plotline. And when I was reading these, I was excited to dump, to jump back into them. So I, this is my favorite Egwene. Yeah. There, there's something to that for sure. Uh, like, obviously, as I've said, Honey in the Tea is my favorite Egwene chapter in the whole series. But, like, of all these Egwene the chapters, book, there are maybe a handful that I look forward to reading when yeah. I sit down to do a reread and uh, several of them are in this book. A Visit from Varen Sedai. The I, Tower Shakes. The Tower I, Stands. You know. I loved her discussion with Suana. Like, 
the way that she's she just subtly mm-hmm. kind of offers this this suggestion of hey maybe be seen publicly enjoying one another's company taking dinner together like it was subtle but it was brilliant like she offers a neat solution to a variety of problems i don't think they were particularly easy because i don't think i could have found situations around them or uh, solutions around them um but she's still unrelenting in in her poise and her confidence during these scenes too like this it's it's kind of hard to see Egwene alvere through this mask that she's putting on as the amerlin but i really yeah. like it and i feel like she's more competent than I expected her to be when I read for the first time that, hey, you are going to be the next Amarlin seat. I wasn't expecting to see her be this good at it. So, like, I mean, I, I okay. love this Egwene. This is, an, this is my favorite Egwene. Cool. Okay. Do you have anything else on Egwene, or shall we move on? Uh, let me take a sit here. I found her to be a bit hypocritical, though, when she was talking to Cien's group about the Black Aja, and she was like, oh my god, you demanded an oath of obedience? Yep. I mean... She did the exact same thing. Was it Morel that she demanded an oath of And Nisao. And Nisao, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that epic one-liner, though, the one that's all Brandon Sanderson, when she's taught, when she confronts Elida at the height of her confrontation, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd call you a dark friend, but I suspect the dark one would be embarrassed to associate with you. Like, yeah. I, I didn't write down <laughs> word for word, but damn, girl. God damn. <laughs> and it felt a little weird to be to, to, to cheer for a character for whom you've been rooting to be beaten senseless, but what a victory that beating was. And it, yeah, it did it, nothing it, but it vindicate her in every way. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and undermine Delida at the same yeah. time. And it's followed up by the fact that, that Shiryam, uh, her point of view, you know, she gets the, the visit from the Forsaken, and they're like, okay, she's not the puppet we've been looking for, so now she's got to go. And that just felt like the cherry on the icing on the cake for me. At that point, I knew that Egwene was kicking all of the ass that she appeared to be kicking. So, yeah, and that yeah. wraps up my discussion on Egwene. Cool. Uh, so I don't have a ton to say uh, about Perrin or Matt that okay. we haven't already said. Okay. Neither uh, did Brandon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because their book is Towers of Midnight. Um, but I do want to say, uh, go Fail. Oh, yeah. For killing Masima? For killing Masima. Just, it, it was, um, it's a continuation of Fail's assertiveness and and the kind of the initiative and the agency that she built up and grasped in Knife of Dreams. Okay. Uh, how she she recognizes the threats around Perrin and the things that are messing with Perrin and when she knows that Perrin either won't or isn't capable of addressing them himself she's just gonna say all right, I'm taking it into my own hands. I'm going to clean up this mess my, by myself. And she does that. And, and man, it was so beautiful reading this book. And, like, I mean, what is that? Like, 20 pages into the, to the book? And Missy was just like, oh, dead. And you're like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't find that dissatisfying? No, it was wonderful. Okay. I, oh. I, found it, I found it satisfying, but not as satisfying as I'd hoped it to be. Because I wanted it to be at, like, the end of a book. Like, the result of something big. Which I guess it was, but... I don't know. I felt like they would well, have been you better know, at, a certain point, at the end I, of Knife of Dreams. I, I remember when I was reading these Brandon books for the first time, and, uh, you know, we've had 11 books of the story expands, and then it expands, and it expands, and it expands, and it expands, and then finally, Knife of Dreams, it keeps expanding. <laughs> and so, well, you know what I mean. Anyway, so Brandon comes in, it's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. There are so many threads to wrap up. <laughs> Brandon oh, cracks my gosh. his proverbial And so what does knuckles. he do? 
He I takes, yeah, he's like, hold my root beer. Uh, <laughs> and he, yes. And he, and he just, uh, and he uh, just acts as Masima in the first 20 pages. Yeah. And so that's that's what I got from that is like, oh, you know what? We don't have time for this clown anymore. Yeah. yeah well, let's no. just get rid of him. Yeah, Go well, and it, and it makes sense narratively for him to die in the aftermath of Malden. Yeah. Because so many of his plans hinged on, right. on Malden. Yeah. And so, like, everything was falling apart anyway. Yeah. So, and, of course, like, he needed to get cleaned up. And it's, it's a convenient way to check off that list, that, that one point on that monumental list that Brandon Sanderson had there when he was taking on a, <laughs> a project of this size, for sure. Um, I want to discuss Nynaeve really briefly. Can we? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I Always. loved... Yeah. Sorry, Craig? Mm. Said no, go on. I love Nynaeve. I love Nynaeve's, like, borderline <laughs> diatribe against the Aes Sedai. Just this hierarchy of deference. That's a that's a mouthful. Jesus. Um, but she's, <laughs> she's, she's so right. Like, so often the women hailed as the greatest Aes Sedai to ever, lived are, to ever live are not women who typically fall into the Aes Sedai stereotype behavior. I think that's something that, that I want to say Rand mentions at one point later in the series. Uh, or somebody does, at least, when they're talking about Nynaeve. It's... it's kind of foggy at, the, at this point but it's it's for this reason that i love Nynaeve as much as i do i've said it so many times during our journey through the wheel of time but i'll say it again for the first time since craig's la uh, you know uh, reappearance i love Nynaeve. when you left me off last time i hated Nynaeve. for the first hundred reads i hated Nynaeve. all through my childhood i was such a moiraine fanboy we did discuss this i know we did yeah. um i railed against Nynaeve, and i know a lot of fans being like like young testosterone driven males kind of did she was so close to rand in age that it felt just beyond patronizing or match matronizing whatever her her <laughs> behavior in the middle third of this series it really irked me i ranted about her behavior during the travels with Phelan luca's menagerie but starting around winter's heart as she leaves Egwene. And, and the tower Elaine's radius of suck. Right, and, and, and Elaine's radius of suck is no longer a factor. And she starts to follow Ryan, and she starts to trust in him. I love this woman. I don't think I've come around so hard on a character, with the possible exception of Cad Swain. I, I love Cad Swain. I love Cad Swain. But now, I mean, I just want to, <laughs> I want to end this segment with a statement that I'm going to regret in the future. Okay, I've said this before, boys. I said Moiraine is my waifu. And I pushed pretty I hard what to that make means, that. But uh, all right, I, I pushed pretty hard to make that an episode title too. At one point, we never ended up choosing titles for episodes. But if Moiraine yeah. is my waifu, Nynaeve is my bay. There, I said it. It's done, and it can't be taken back. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I immediately regret that you said that. Yes, I, and that that'll fulfill your millennial I, jargon quota for the day. Knew <laughs> that was coming, and I thought about. Like two minutes earlier, I thought about saying, "Is is this just going to become a thing that every time Craig is on, somebody uses the term bay?" Oh, did that happen? Did you last say time? bay? It did happen last time? I said say bay, bay last time. Oh, did no. you? Oh my yeah, god! It's, it's the only time in my life I've ever used that term. So what R you're saying? This is might that be the only time in my life my I've own, ever used it. I have my own radius of suck. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's got his radius of bay <laughs> oh, of no. his millennial. Oh jargon there oh man but yeah if Moiraine's yeah. my wife who yeah. Nynaeve is my bae I'm just gonna say that I love Nynaeve okay. I come around so hard okay. on Nynaeve so that, that ends up my, my character discussions honestly awesome we can discuss uh, Matt so, more next time if you want uh, were there any other characters you wanted to discuss Craig no I'm good no, there I'm are ready not. to move on into right. uh, deep penetrative lore slash miscellaneous and questions well well uh, the, the 
the deep penetrative lore won't won't be as deep and penetrating today. We are a little pressed for time, yeah, uh, so sure. I'm not going to dive in. But there are just a couple of things I wanted to bring up. Um, one of them is that uh, Rand gets a new sword in this book. Ah! And it, it is Justice. It is justice, Archer Hawkwing's like sword. Sword of Justice defend us. So yeah, that, that's... Uh, I know it's a pretty common question in fandom. People are like, "What? It. What is this it. like random sword that you just got?" It is. It is Arthur Hawkwing's old sword. Chest. Where did he get it? I, they, like some people found it like excavating under an old statue. Huh. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then the other is just to reiterate that we see Quaindiar destroyed by the true power in this mm-hmm. in this segment. Oh yeah, I keep forgetting and, that the domination band is Quaindiar. Yeah, and and that just you know is another. Um, contextual point for how the seals are weakening and how the seals are being destroyed because it is the Dark One's power that is capable of destroying Quaindiar. Mm. Yes. So. Um, as far as my miscellaneous here, I just have, uh, I just want to point out that uh, I wanted to ask Drew, uh, Craig, you might be able to answer this for me too. There's a moment where uh, Rand promises Harin Dintogara Tuwins another question and she leaves and she apparently saves it for another time. I don't remember if she ever got the chance to ask him again. Did she ask him another question ever in the future? Did she take him up on that? Not that I remember. Okay, because so I don't. I, I I remember seeing her walk away from it this time around. Yeah. I like, Wait well, a I think um, it was actually a lost epilogue where she's chatting <laughs> with him and she says, uh, "So what was the deal with that pipe?" And he just walked away. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's gotta be what it was. Or he yeah, gave her a raffle. That was the actual that's what ending that Robert Jordan wrote, <laughs> but uh, Harriet decided that wouldn't be fulfilling enough, so she just cut it herself. <laughs> I she's hanging Gavin's out with uh, who's the Aiel that they run into? Nakomi. Yeah, Nikomi, she's hanging yeah. out with Nakomi, and they, they're both like, "What's up? What's up with that pipe?" They're having a deep heart to heart where Nakomi is telling her uh, yeah. her life story with all <laughs> <Yeah>. the answers. <laughs> It's really sad that nobody else will ever get to and read that. And she's like, and this is exactly how, let me walk you through the steps on how to help Randall Thor swap bodies with the Forsaken. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, I did, this is the first time and only time I ever actually rooted for Gowan when he's fighting his way into the, the camp. And he says, he just demands an audience with Gareth Bryn. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, no. Cool to see him kick ass. What? You didn't like he's, it? He's a, he's a it was so badass, though. Yeah. That scene. Yeah, I know, I know, but that that teenager inside of me was like, "Oh, that's so cool." No, um, there's no such thing as good Gowan. No. Oh well, no! no. Not even a, not like even in the eye of the world when he's so kind to the stranger who's over is, the wall. Fine. Uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. uh, Catswain spanking Samuraj. What a yep. What a what a gem of, of a scene right there. Like, this is where the first notions in my head of Cad Swain might not actually be so bad started. And, yeah. and I'm just going to say, uh, I think, like, Brandon wrote that scene. Of course. But I think we all know that Robert Jordan outlined it. Oh, yeah. Brandon, <laughs> Brandon did not come up with that scene. <laughs> no, no? Oh, I kind of, you know what? I'm arguing for Brandon. I think that could have been a very original Brandon scene. That's brilliant, but it's no. kind of like... It's such a it's such a, a stark, startling, cold. I want to say slapping exactly. Face, but let's let's put it this way: which of these two authors has a long track record of random spankings in his books? Okay, you know what? That's a good point. Parent <laughs> and spanking. And which one of them the would be absolutely terrified to put something like that in their book? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, no, you guys make that's, a good case. You guys make a great pure, case. Pure unadulterated Robert Jordan. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, in my last miscellaneous point here, finally, finally, the Sean Chan have had their first encounters with a shadow. Yes. My girl Tylee coming Ty in there scene? with the yeah. trollic head, brought to two on notice after like what nine books of the Sean Chan being a in problem. We they finally <laughs> meet the shadow. Finally. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. That's it. And that rounds up everything I have to discuss about The Gathering Storm Part 1. I'm ready to head into the final draft, if neither of you have anything else to add. Do it. Kick us off, Rob. Okay, so I brought to the table today something that I think you're going to appreciate. It's probably the lightest beer I've ever featured. It's only 4.5% ABV. Um, But after reading the name, I knew that this had to be done. Uh, This is a session IPA from a brewery that we've definitely featured before. It's called Lake of Bays Brewery. Yeah, or yeah, Lake of Bay's Brewing Company, I should say. And keeping in mind of how much a fan I am of Egwene for this part in particular, um, this is a tribute to all these sessions that she has been enjoying with Sylviana, where she gets to laugh in the face of her supposed penance. This one is called Paddle On. Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I figured that would be about uh, Cat Swain. And, uh, and, uh, oh, I didn't even consider that. Oh, my God. Kazwin <laughs> spanked Samurage. I didn't even think about that. What is wrong with me? I, I, I got you. That's, that's pretty you. good. That's pretty good. Nice. Okay, is this okay. the part where we insert uh, Ramble on? Like, pat it on. Oh, my God. I want like I want Pat to add like a wah, 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 wah. Just to oh, highlight man. my failure there. Okay, go ahead. That's what I'm drinking for today. So, yeah. What I'm drinking today is... Uh, is the first of two parts for the first of two parts of this book. Uh, The beer I have today is a counterpart to what I will be bringing next week. Okay. And uh, these are for Rand. So what I'm drinking today is a uh, a stout, uh, excuse me, a nitro porter infused with vanilla from Station 12 Brewing Company. It's a 5.0%, so... Not not too hefty, not too ridiculous, but it is simply called dark. Okay. Okay. And uh, I assume you'll have more to say on the next I'm episode. I right? will. I will. <laughs> yeah, next week I will bring in the counterpart beer. Stay Rand. tuned, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it is called Rand. <laughs> no. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> dude, can you imagine? I bring that in a beer called be Dark all, Rand. Be up there with one key. <laughs> Oh, I'm still working on that, mm, by the way. I bet you are. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I think that brings us to the end of our episode here. This has been... Oh, my gosh. What what episode is this? I want to say this is 59 because Knife of Dreams Part 2 was 58. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. This is episode 59. Um, next up, we will be going straight into... Uh, the second half of the Gathering Storm, we will be finishing the book. Uh, as always, you know, if you appreciate what we're doing, if you want to get access to all of our bonus content, we have a monthly newsletter, monthly short fiction, we do episodes on general science fiction and fantasy topics and short stories, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. All of that money goes toward uh, paying our sound engineer and our artist. We really believe in uh, you know, paying people for their work. We're not trying to line our pockets here. So check us out over there. As always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. 
and our very special guest, Craig Hanks. Yeah, how special are we talking here? I want to quantify this. The uh, most special. Like a Craig. <laughs> like, like a three out of five. Oh, okay. Last time right. I referred to once as Greg. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, and then you referred to Daniel Green as Craig. I referred I to believe. Daniel Green. I called him Craig once on our episode. Did you really? Yeah. I, yes, I, I did. I need to message him and rub that in his face. <laughs> yeah. That was, oh, yeah. Uh, it was, it was, that was one of those moments where as a host, you just want to melt into the floor and restart time. <laughs> oh, I've had a few of those. <laughs> yeah. So, um, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody.